Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from Travels in Alaska. It was written by one of my favourite figures in history, John Muir, and details his trip of 1879 to Alaska. I'd like to thank you for listening to the podcast, and I hope it helps you fall asleep. My goal is to help people everywhere get a good night's rest, and I hope it helps you too. Before you start feeling drowsy, it would be amazing if you are able to leave a comment and rating in your podcast app. It really does help me reach more people who need a good night's rest. You can also say hello or support the podcast at boreyoutosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Part 1. The Trip of 1879 Travels in Alaska Chapter 1 Puget Sound and British Columbia After 11 years of study and exploration in the Sierra Nevada of California and the mountain ranges of the Great Basin, studying in particular their glaciers, forests and wildlife, above all their ancient glaciers and the influence they exerted in sculpturing the rocks over which they passed with tremendous pressure, making new landscapes, scenery and beauty which so mysteriously influence every human being and to some extent all life. I was anxious to gain some knowledge of the regions to the northward about Puget Sound and Alaska. With this grand object in view, I left San Francisco in May 1879 on the steamer Dakota without any definite plan, as with the exception of a few of the Oregon peaks and their forests, all the wild north was new to me. To the mountaineer, a sea voyage is grand, inspiring restful change. For forests and plains, with their flowers and fruits, we have new scenery, new life of every sort. Water hills and dales, in eternal visible motion, for rock waves, types of permanence. It was curious to note how suddenly eager countenances of the passengers were darkened as soon as the good ship passed through the Golden Gate, and began to heave on the waves of the open ocean. The crowded deck was speedily deserted on account of seasickness. It seemed strange that nearly everyone afflicted should be more or less ashamed. Next morning, a strong wind was blowing, and the sea was grey and white, with long breaking waves 
across which the Dakota was racing half-buried in spray. Very few of the passengers were on deck to enjoy the wild scenery. Every wave seemed to be making enthusiastic, eager haste to the shore, with long, arised tresses streaming from its tops, some of its outer fringes borne away in scud to refresh the wind, all the rolling, pitching, flying water exulting in the beauty of rainbow light. Gulls and albatrosses, strong, glad life in the midst of the stormy beauty, skimmed the waves against the wind, seemingly without effort, oftentimes flying nearly a mile without a single wing beat, gracefully swaying from side to side and tracing the curves of the briny water hills with the finest precision, now and then just grazing the highest. And yonder, glistening amid the irised spray, is still more striking revelation of warm life in the so-called howling waste. A half-dozen whales, their broad backs like glaciated bosses of granite heaving aloft in near view, spouting lustily, drawing a long breath and plunging down home in colossal health and comfort. The merry school of porpoises, a square mile of them, suddenly appear, tossing themselves into the air in abounding strength and hilarity, adding foam to the waves and making all the wilderness wilder. One cannot but feel sympathy with and be proud of these brave neighbours, fellow citizens in the commonwealth of the world, making a living like the rest of us. Our good ship also seemed like a thing of life, its great iron heart beating on through calm and storm, a truly noble spectacle. But think of the hearts of these whales, beating warm against the sea, day and night, through dark and light, on and on for centuries. How the red blood must rush and gurgle in and out, Bucket falls, barrel falls at a beat. The cloud colours of one of the four sunsets enjoyed on the voyage were remarkably pure and rich in tone. There was a well-defined range of cumuli a few degrees above the horizon and a massive dark grey rain cloud above it from which depended long bent fringes overlapping the lower cumuli and partially veiling them, and from time to time sunbeams poured through narrow openings and painted the exposed bosses and fringes in ripe yellow tones which, with the reflection on the water, made magnificent pictures. The scenery of the ocean, however sublime in vast expanse, seems far less beautiful to us dry-shod animals 
than that of the land seen only in comparatively small patches. But when we contemplate the whole globe as one great dewdrop, striped and dotted with continents and islands, flying through space with other stars all singing and shining together as one, the whole universe appears as an infinite storm of beauty. The California coast hills and cliffs look bare and uninviting as seen from the ship, the magnificent forests keeping well back out of sight beyond the reach of the sea winds. Those of Oregon and Washington are in some places clad with conifers nearly down to the shore. Even the little detached islets, so marked a feature to the northward, are mostly tree-crowned. Up through the straits of Juan de Fuca, the forests, sheltered from the ocean gales and favoured with abundant rains, flourish in marvellous luxuriance on the glacier-sculpted mountains of the Olympic Range. We arrived in Esquimalt Harbour, three miles from Victoria, on the evening of the fourth day and drove to the town through a magnificent forest of Douglas spruce, with an undergrowth in open spots of oak, madrone, hazel, dogwood, alder, spiray, willow and wild rose, and around many an upswelling mouton rock, freshly glaciated and furred with yellow mosses and lichens, Victoria, the capital of British Columbia, was in 1879 a small, old-fashioned English town on the south end of Vancouver Island. It was said to contain about 6,000 inhabitants. The government buildings and some of the business blocks were noticeable, but the attention of the traveller was more worthily attracted to the neat cottage homes found here, embowered in the freshest and floweriest climbing roses and honeysuckles conceivable. Californians may well be proud of their home roses loading sunny verandas, climbing to the tops of the roofs and falling over the gables in white and red cascades. But here, with so much bland fog and dew and gentle, laving rain, a still finer development of some of the commonest garden plants is reached. English honeysuckle seems to have found here a most congenial home. Still more beautiful were the wild roses, blooming in wonderful luxuriance along the woodland paths with corollas two and three inches wide. This rose and three species of spiray fairly filled the air with fragrance after showers, and how brightly then did the red dogwood berries shine amid the green leaves beneath trees 250 feet high. Strange to say, all of this exuberant forest and flower vegetation was growing upon fresh moraine material, scarcely at all moved or in any way modified 
by post-glacial agents. In the town gardens and orchards, peaches and apples fell upon glacier-polished rocks, and the streets were graded in moraine gravel, and I observed scratched and grooved rock bosses as unweathered and telling as those of the High Sierra of California 8,000 feet or more above sea level. The Victoria Harbour is plainly glacial in origin, eroded from the solid and the rock islets that rise here and there are unchanged to any appreciable extent by all the waves that have broken over them since first they came to light toward the close of the glacial period. The shores also of the harbour are strikingly grooved and scratched in any and every way as glacial in all their characteristics as those of newborn glacial lakes. That the domain of the sea is being slowly extended over the land by incessant wave action is well known. But in this freshly glaciated region, the shores have been so short a time exposed to wave action that they are scarcely at all wasted. The extension of the sea, affected by its own action in post-glacial times, is probably less than the millionth part of that affected by glacial action during the last glacier period. The direction of the flow of the ice sheet to which all the main features of this wonderful region are due was in general southward. From the little quiet English town I made many short excursions up the coast to Nemo to Burrard Inlet, now the terminus of the Canadian Pacific Railroad, to Puget Sound, up Fraser River, to Newminster and Yale at the head of navigation, charmed everywhere with the wild newborn scenery. The most interesting of these, and the most difficult to leave, was the Puget Sound region, famous the world over for the wonderful forests of gigantic trees about its shores. It is an arm and many-fingered hand of the sea, reaching southward from the straits of Juan de Fuca, about the hundred miles into the heart of one of the noblest coniferous forests on the face of the globe. All its scenery is wonderful, broad river-like reaches, sweeping in beautiful curves around bays and capes and jutting promontories opening here and there into smooth blue lake-like expanses dotted with islands and feathered with tall spiry evergreens their beauty doubled on the bright mirror water sailing from victoria the olympic mountains are seen right ahead rising in bold relief against the sky, with jagged crests and peaks from six to 8,000 feet high, small residual glaciers 
and ragged snow fields beneath them in wide amphitheatres opening down through the forest-filled valleys. These valleys mark the course of the Olympic glaciers at their period of their greatest extension. When they poured their tribute into that portion of the great northern ice sheet that swept Vancouver Island and filled the strait between and the mainland. On the way up to Olympia, then a hopeful little town, situated at the end of one of the longest fingers of the sound, one is often reminded of Lake Tahoe. The scenery of the widest expanses is so lake-like in the clearness and stillness of the water and the luxuriance of the surrounding forests. Doubling cape after cape, passing uncounted islands, new combinations break on the view in endless variety, sufficient to satisfy the lover of wild beauty through a whole life. When the clouds come down, blotted out everything, one feels as if at sea, again lifting a little. Some islet may be seen standing alone, with the tops of its trees dipping out of sight in grey, misty fringes. Then the ranks of spruce and cedar bounding the water's edge come to view. And when at length the whole sky is clear, the colossal cone of Mount Rainier may be seen in spotless white, looking down over the dark woods from a distance of fifty or sixty miles, but so high and massive, and so sharply outlined, it seems to be just back of a strip of woods, only a few miles wide. Mount Rainier, or Tahoma, the Indian name, is the noblest of the volcanic cones extending from the Lassen Butte and Mount Shasta along the Cascade Range to Mount Baker. One of the most telling views of it hereabouts is obtained near Tacoma. From a bluff back of the town, it was revealed in all its glory laden with glaciers and snow down to the forested foothills around its finely curved base. Up to this time, 1879, it had been ascended but once. From observations made on the summit with a single aneroid barometer, it was estimated to be about 14,500 feet high. Mount Baker, to the northward, is about 10,700 feet high, a noble mountain. So also are Mount Adams, Mount St. Helens, and Mount Hood. The latter, overlooking the town of Portland, is perhaps the best known. Rainier, about the same height as Shasta, surpasses them all, in massive icy grandeur, the most majestic solitary mountain I had ever yet beheld. Yet eagerly as I gazed and longed to climb it and study its history, only the mountaineer may know 
but I was compelled to turn away and bide my time. The species forming the bulk of the woods here is the Douglas spruce, one of the greatest of the western giants. A specimen that I measured near Olympia was about 300 feet in height and 12 feet in diameter, 4 feet above the ground. It is a widely distributed tree extending northward through British Columbia, southward through Oregon and California, and eastward to the Rocky Mountains. The timber is used for shipbuilding, spars, piles, and the framework of houses and bridges, etc. In the California lumber markets, it is known as Oregon pine. In Utah, where it is common on the Washat Mountains, it is called red pine. In California, on the western slope of the Sierra Nevada, it forms in company with the yellow pine, sugar pine, and incense cedar, a pretty well-defined belt at a height of from three to 6,000 feet above the sea. But it is only in Oregon and Washington, especially in this Puget Sound region, that it reaches its very grandest development, tall, straight, and strong, growing down close to tidewater. All the towns of the Sound had a hopeful, thrifty aspect. Port Townsend, picturesquely located on a grassy bluff, was the sort of clearance for vessels sailing to foreign parts. Seattle was famed for its coal mines and claimed to be coming town of North Pacific Coast. So also did its rival, Tacoma, which had been selected as the terminus of the much-talked-of Northern Pacific Railway. Several coal veins of astonishing thickness were discovered the winter before on the Carbon River, to the east of Tacoma, one of them said to be no less than 21 feet, another 20 feet, another 14 with many smaller ones, the aggregate thickness of all the veins being upwards of 100 feet. Large deposits of magnetic iron ore and brown hematite, together with limestone, had been discovered in advantageous proximity to the coal, making a bright outlook for the sound region in general in connection with its railroad hopes, its unrivaled timber resources, and its far-reaching geographical relations. After spending a few weeks in the Puget Sound with a friend from San Francisco, we engaged passage on the little mail steamer California at Portland, Oregon, for Alaska. The sail down the broad lower reaches of the Columbia and across its foamy bar around Cape Flattery and up to Juan de Fuca Strait was delightful. And after calling again at Victoria and Port Townsend, we got fairly off for icy Alaska. To the lover of pure wildness, 
Alaska is one of the most wonderful countries in the world. No excursion that I know of may be made into any other American wilderness with so marvellous an abundance of noble. Newborn scenery is so charmingly brought to view as on the trip through the Alexander Archipelago to Fort Wrangell and Sitka. Gazing from the deck of the steamer, one is borne smoothly over calm blue waters through the midst of countless forest-clad islands. The ordinary discomforts of a sea voyage are not felt. For nearly all the whole long way is on inland waters that are about as waveless as rivers and lakes. So numerous are the islands that they seem to have been sown broadcast, long tapering vistas between the largest of them open in every direction. Day after day, in the fine weather we enjoyed, we seemed to float in true fairyland, each succeeding view seeming more and more beautiful, the one we chanced to have before us the most surprisingly beautiful of all. Never before this had I been so embosomed in scenery, so hopelessly beyond description. To sketch picturesque bits, definitely bounded, is comparatively easy. A lake in the woods, a glacier meadow, or a cascade in its dell, or even a grandmaster view of mountains beheld from some commanding outlook after climbing from height to height above the forests. These may be attempted, and more or less telling pictures made of them, but in these coast landscapes there is such indefinite, on-leading expansiveness, such a multitude of features without apparent redundance, their lines graduating delicately into one another in endless succession. While the whole is so fine, so tender, so ethereal, that all penwork seems hopelessly unveiling, tracing shining ways through fjord and sound, past forests and waterfalls, islands and mountains, and far as your headlands, it seems as if surely we must be at length reach the very paradise of the poets, the abode of the blessed. Some idea of the wealth of this scenery may be gained from the fact that the coastline of Alaska is about 26,000 miles long, more than twice as long as all the rest of the United States. The islands of the Alexander Archipelago, with the straits, channels, canals, sounds, passages and fjords, form an intricate web of land and water embroidery, 60 or 70 miles wide, fringing the lofty icy chain of coast mountains from Puget Sound to Cook Inlet. And with infinite variety, the general pattern is harmonious throughout its whole extent 
of nearly a thousand miles. Here you glide into a narrow channel hemmed in by mountain walls, forested down to the water's edge, where there is no distant view and your attention is concentrated on the objects close about you, the crowded spires of the spruces and hemlocks rising higher and higher on the steep green slopes. Stripes of paler green where winter avalanches have cleared away the trees, allowing grasses and willows to spring up, zigzags of cascades appearing and disappearing among the bushes and trees, short steep glens with brawling steams hidden beneath alder and dogwood, seen only where they emerge on the brown algae of the shore, and retreating hollows with lingering snowbanks marking the fountains of ancient glaciers. The steamer is often so near the shore that you may distinctly see the cones clustered on the tops of the trees and the ferns and bushes at their feet. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you're feeling drowsy. If you'd like to, please feel free to listen to another episode. Until next time, good night.